chapter 16. Now, I did promise that we were going to take a look at the older son in Luke 15, um, but the context of the two passages need to be taught together, so I will come back and revisit the older son of Luke 15 and the prodigal son, uh, but I'm not going to do it now because the two passages have to be taught together in context, and I'll explain that momentarily. Uh, but this is, the we studied last week, um, you got that? The, par- the parable of the prodigal son, and uh, this, this would be called the parable of the prodigal steward. And we, we took a look at the word prodigal. It means uh, one who is wasteful in their living. And uh, the prodigal son basically went to his father, and he was the younger of the two sons, so he had no, no ability to do this. He was overstepping his bounds, but he went to his father, and he said, give me my inheritance now. I, I don't want to live under your rules. And basically, he was saying, I wish you were dead, because a parent would give the inheritance after they died. And uh, he basically said, I wish you were dead, just give me my money. It's kind of like the Menendez brothers, just give me my money. And um, so he takes it and he goes and wastes it in a faraway land and, um, and he, he's living in a pigsty. He runs out of money and, and the good times are over. And he says, maybe I'll just come back and be a servant in my father's household. And his father's waiting for him. We saw the picture, he ran for him. He loved him, he'd been waiting for him. We saw a picture of the father's heart. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and in the prodigal son, we can see ourselves. That doesn't matter where you've been or what you've been doing or how much you've, you've screwed up what's been entrusted to you, God wants you home. And, um, and I, I love that about the story. Well, in the same regard, in the fourth century, monks looked at these two passages and you didn't have chapter breaks in the original language uh, when it was written in the Koine Greek. But the monks in the fourth century separated chapter 15 from 16, but they actually go together. In one parable, Jesus is speaking to a large group of people, including the Pharisees and the scribes, and then he turns his attention to the disciples and begins to tell them another parable. And for those of you who are new, the word parable is uh, parallel lines alongside each other. Parabolos, it means to come alongside. So a parable means you take an earthly story alongside a heavenly truth and Jesus teaches by story so you start to grasp it. And so he begins to tell them this earthly story about the parable of the unjust steward or better put the parable of the prodigal steward which ties in because you have two beneficent masters, one being the father to the prodigal son and the other being the master to the unjust steward, the manager. And both of them have very benevolent, merciful and, and, and gracious hearts towards wayward individuals. And the reason why they have to be taught together is because the emphasis from the Lord to all of us is he wants you home. It doesn't matter what you've been doing and how unjust it's been and how you've messed everything up. Just come on home. Uh, let's just do things right. And, and in this scenario, in its initial reading in the English, we kind of screw up the interpretation of the passage because we think of it from a banker's mindset, but it had nothing to do with banking. In a sense, it really had nothing to do with finance. Uh, anyone listening to the story from a Middle Eastern mindset, and we're gonna pick, pick up a look at that because Eastern view of this is different than we get from a Western set of eyes that would look upon it, and I'll walk you through that. It really helps in understanding the passage. So that's our long introduction, um, and so if you'd stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I would greatly appreciate it. We stand for the word of God, and we sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, and the other we tolerate. Luke 16, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Uh, The passage begins by saying, Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting 
his goods. And that's where you get the word prodigal, wasting. Wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, he has this monologue with himself, what shall I do for my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their house or into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors and said to him and, uh, and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. That's about, well, you'll see in a moment. I'll walk you through it. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. So the master com commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. And this is important to understand the passage. It reads, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting home. He was faithful in what is least is also uh, is faithful also in much, and he was unjust in what is least is unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And mammon. And then the last verse I want to read is verse 14 because it tells us that even though he was speaking to the disciples, the Pharisees were listening. The passage reads, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided Jesus. They attacked him. So that's our passage. Let me pray and then I'll let you grab a seat. Lord, thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you lead us into all truth. And Lord, just the picture of your merciful heart that we see in the father of the prodigal son and now the master over the prodigal manager, the, the prodigal steward. And Lord, in all of this, I pray that our eyes would be open to see how benevolent, gracious, and merciful you are. But in the same regard, Lord, as you desired for the disciples to hear this, how important it is to establish such ventures of faith in a worldly sense would be the same for us in a heavenly sense. So Lord, I pray our eyes would be open to living for what is most important. And I pray, Lord, your blessing upon the study of your word. And I thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. Relax. <clears throat> uh, called the prodigal steward. And uh, in the passage, it says that uh, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And that's basically a manager of his affairs. He was a farm manager. Uh, the, the master owned property. And he had... Um, he had individuals that leased his property and, and they would pay the master or the owner of these fields in produce, whether it be wheat or olive oil. And so they were tenants, tenant farmers that would pay with farm goods. And so this is a story not about a banker. This is a story about farming. And anyone in an agrarian culture would understand this, especially from the Middle East. And so Jesus specifically takes this story to drive a point home uh, in conjunction with what we saw in chapter 15 and now in 16. And this certain rich man has this steward who oversees all of his business affairs in relation to his tenant farming. 
And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his master's goods. He was stealing um, from his master. Now, we don't know who brought the accusation, but fascinatingly enough, we believe it to be the community, but we're not told who that is. And there's three players in the parable. You have the community itself, which is kind of a silent voice. You have the master, and then you have the, the steward, or better put, the manager. And so this accusation is brought to him that this man was wasting or stealing um, his master's goods. And so he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account. Now that word give an account, I want to cover that because um, in, in, um, in Arabic or Syriac or Coptic, uh, this has been translated through the fourth century far different than we have it in our Western reading It says, uh, so he called him to himself and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be a steward. And fascinatingly enough, the the steward remains silent. He doesn't speak. Uh, The the master says, what is this that I hear about you? And in an initial reading of this, superficially in our Western mindset, we see a picture where where, uh, this this steward cheats his master and is commended by Jesus for being a liar and a thief. You, You couldn't interpret it more incorrectly than that. But that's typically how we read it, and we, we believe Jesus commending a thief and a liar uh, and, the, and the shrewdness of the way he operates. That is not the interpretation of the passage. It's, it's clear to, uh, even when we look at the ancient text and we go through the ancient commentaries, they understood it. And it's embedded in Middle Eastern culture. But in this idea, and one of the reasons why we see it is, so he called him to him and he said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account. Now, um, the first thing is the word steward is not in relation to a banker. It, it is very clearly translated in the Syriac and the Arabic and the Coptic as an estate manager. And when he says, what is this I hear about you? It's a, it's a classic Middle Eastern opener. Uh, you're, 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 you're posing a question to challenge the employed. And, and how they respond is going to speak volumes of how you're going to react as, as an owner and he's confronting this manager, this steward, when he says, what is this I hear about you? And um, fascinatingly enough, the steward, the steward has no idea uh, what information has reached his master. So I imagine some of you have been in the same boat I've been in. I'm assuming, maybe not. First service, apparently nobody. <laughs> but I've found myself in times especially in married life, where I'm confronted by something I've done wrong. And I remain wisely silent because I'm not exactly sure what the person accusing me of completely knows. And I don't want to give them more information and make myself even more guilty with things they were unaware of. So I just remain silent Is there anyone else in the room that's ever had that? Okay, so we have a few more sinners in first service. That's great. Yeah, yeah, and and typically when you're confronted, you you just think, okay, um, you know, this is my first rodeo. I failed before, and the last time I I blabbed on and on and actually revealed things that they didn't even know I'd done, and now I got in even more trouble, so. And he, 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 he just remained silent in this sense. And he says, what is this I hear about you? And he confronts him in this, but he knows that the information hasn't reached his master completely. 
And if he panics in the hearing of the question, which is a Middle Eastern approach, if he panics in the hearing of the question, uh, it'll give doubt to his master and it'll put him in a tough predicament. And so he, he deals with this with great insight. He's a shrewd manager. He knows how to deal with the owner. It's not his first rodeo. And he's way too clever to be trapped by the master in relation to it. And um, he says, what is this I hear of you? And, the, and the, the guy doesn't say anything. He knows the game. He refuses to play and he just stands there in complete silence. And uh, tense moments pass. And that, that's one of the things that they taught us when I was a salesman for Unilever and Helene Curtis and Cheeseboro Ponds and A.C. Nielsen that one of the greatest things you can do in sales is you pre- present and then you just be quiet. And yeah, Tom's back there, he sold chicken, he knows how to be quiet. <laughs> and and you're just, you just quiet and you wait for the other person to say something. And interestingly enough in sales, people don't wanna know about you, they want you to know about them and, and the best way to get them to buy is to ask them questions about themselves. Just, so I know, and you look around the room and you see their family and you, see, you try to make some sort of connection and then they talk. And when they talk, they reveal a number of ins, ways to communicate with them. And they're welcoming you into their world. And then they also realize you have a, 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 a heart because you're thoughtful and you're thinking about them. Instead of just coming in and showing the sales sheets and saying, you know, this is what you need and I got it for you. And instead you spend time and, and this, this man, interestingly enough, this isn't his first business transaction. He knows to remain silent. And he, he does not get trapped, in a sense, to the way the master is trying to figure out the information from the manager. But interestingly enough, he already has enough reliable in- information to fire him, which tells us something about the master. The master's trustworthy that people would come to him and say, the manager you got is a train wreck. And he's, he's ripping you off and we want you to be mindful of it. And they're people that he's trusted because he already has enough information to be able to fire him. He wants him to be able to elaborate, which he doesn't. He remains silent. And the master looks at him and he says, give me an accounting of your management. Now in the Middle Eastern mindset, give an account of your stewardship, give me an accounting of your management. It's, it's deeper than that. He's saying, really, as he's, he's looking over it, he says to him, Point blank, you're fired. There's a show on TV where I did that. Had hair, really cool. You're fired. <laughs> so he says, you're fired. And, and really what he's doing is, I'm firing you now. Now bring me the books. Because the books had all the information. And in, and in some industries, the, the thing of greatest value is your contacts. He says, bring those to me. Bring me the balance sheets. You're fired. I want all the information. Typically when, uh, and I've seen it happen, when I, I remember when we had to fire the city manager. And uh, the HR personnel came in. They walked into his office. They, they said, uh, you're, you're fired. And they grabbed your things and they escorted him out the building. We don't want you grabbing your computer. We don't want you grabbing all the the data, we don't want you grabbing anything, you're fired, go. You're no longer working here. And so what the master's saying to him is, you're fired, now give me the accounting books. Not give me an accounting of your stewardship, he says give me the accounting books, I want the books. I don't want you to balance the books, I want you to turn them in. And the manager is fired on the spot. 
Now, this is rabbinical law, and I found this fascinating. The appointment and powers of an agent may be revoked at any time with or without good cause, and whatever the agent does after being removed is not binding on the principal or the master or the owner of the property. So in this story where the master fires the agent in person, which is the steward, um, and from that point onward, anything that the manager does, anything that the steward does from this point on uh, in the name of the estate is illegal. So all of the, the accounting gimmicks that he did, you know, you owe me 100, give me 50. You owe me 100, give me 80. All of those were illegal, and the master had no obligation to honor those. Keep that in mind. He had no obligation to honor any of this, the, the conniving, scheming activities of this steward. And what he's telling the steward is, give me the accounting books. Now there's one problem. The steward still has the books. And he probably said something along the lines of, you know, let me go get them, I'll bring them back. He goes, well, go get them, you're fired. Just go get the books. I don't want to hear it. He didn't have anyone to escort him out or go get the books or walk him. He just said, go get the books and, and, and bring them back. And so this is where the parable takes on this picture of an ex-manager who's been fired, but he still has the accounting books. You have to keep that in mind because you'll understand the passage and the heart of the master, which is what God wants you to understand this morning because these two facts are critical to the rest of the story. So the master fires the manager, says go get the books, and you, typically they would negotiate for days if this was a severance, but it wasn't. It was you're fired and uh, he doesn't say, I'm going to arrest you for stealing. He just says, go get the books. You're fired. I'm not going to go review all the people. I'm not going to build a case against you. I just want the books back. He's being merciful. He has every right to fire him. He has every right to imprison him. He can sell him into slavery in this culture. And if, if the manager, if the steward was unjustly accused... In a Middle Eastern voice, he would have said, bring those cowards that have accused me so I can defend myself in their presence and I want to hear them say that to my face. He just remained silent as he's done all along. And his silence in a Middle Eastern voice is complicit with guilt. He knows he's guilty. All he gets to do is go get the books. It's a confession of guilt. His silence is a confession of guilt. And so he goes to get the books, he walks out of the room, he doesn't plead to be reinstated, he just leaves. And then this is a monologue that he has in his own mind, and the master doesn't hear it, and no one else hears it, and this is what he says in verse three to himself, what shall I do for my master is taking the stewardship away from me, he's getting the account books, I can't dig, I'm ashamed to beg, I'm resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, or as I've been put out of the stewardship, they may re receive me into their house. And he realizes he has this outcast uh, position in the community. He's no longer working for the wealthiest man in town. He's in trouble. And he has to figure out, how do I hold some status and some position? I just got fired from a really good gig for embezzlement and stealing and I've got to somehow survive in this community. This is important to grasp. He's an outcast, and he wants to prepare for his future. He's an outcast, and he wants to prepare for his future. He can't beg. He's no good at manual labor. Now, I've made a living, well, I should say it's a calling, 
out of my voice. I, 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 I can't fix anything for the life of me. There, there's not a callus on my hand. And if I try to fix it, it just costs me more money. My toolbox consists of the yellow pages and a credit card. That's all I got. Thank God I married Michelle. She, she can fix things, but more importantly, her dad can. Thank you, Tom. I love that guy. And I'm, I'm helpless. And if, and if, if I couldn't speak, I don't know what I'd do. I do. I don't know what I'd do. And there's been times in our 29, almost 30 years of marriage where, you know, things are critical and you're, you're worrying, okay, we, we don't have any money in the bank. We don't have anywhere we can borrow the money. We, we, we have unbelievable bills due. Uh, the, the job that I'm doing now isn't going to pay these bills. And, and you're overwhelmed. And you're trying to figure out as a family, and at some points we had two kids, some points three, sometimes four, sometimes five kids. We're trying to figure out as a family our future on this earth. I'm in trouble. How am I going to secure the safety of my family between where I am now and where we need to be? How am I going to get these kids safely? How am I going to keep the roof over their head? How am I going to keep the lights on? How am I going to keep them fed? You start to reduce your, your expenses and, and uh, you, you start finding other avenues. Benevolence of others comes through. Things of this sort start to come together. But I know what it's like, like all of you do, to prepare in a, tr- in a trial how you're going to keep everyone safe and your family. Well, that's, that's this guy. And in all fairness to to this steward, he's in this mess by his own doing. And maybe not you, but certainly me. I, every mess I've been in is not by anyone else's doing. I am fully responsible for it. And there are times where I just look at Michelle and I go, I, I, I got us in problems. I'm sorry. It's going to be an interesting year. Bless her heart. She's like, well, we survived it before. I guess we'll get it done again. God's good. She's sweet. She's sweet. Well, this, this man can't beg and he can't work and he's got himself in a pickle. He's in an outcast state of mind and he comes up in his murmurings and this monologue that he's having in his head thinking, what a mess I'm in. How am I gonna survive in this community? What, I'm gonna, what am I gonna do? These people won't welcome me in their homes. I won't have any connections. I'll have no business dealings. How do I make them like me after what I've done? How am I going to get another job? All these questions are going through his head. And uh, he said, you know, thinking probably to himself, there's no way I'm going to be able to manage this guy's estate, but how am I going to get a job managing someone else's estate? You know, maybe you get fired from, from one organization, you got to find a job in another organization. You need to do that before they, you know, send their letters. And that's where he's at. And, and he's worried. He knows he's been fired and so I like this, uh, in this author writes, he discovers that he has one last card that he can play and with daring he proceeds to play it. If he is simply fired for corruption, no one will hire him. But being a clever scoundrel, he dreams up a cunning scheme. And that scheme is pretty interesting in a world, worldly mindset. He doesn't repent from his stealing, he just begins to steal more. In his preconceived plan, he goes to his master's debtors. He's got the books. He's got the power. I'm going to milk these guys. 
He summons them to come in and is careful to talk to them individually. He calls them all together and he does that for a reason. Because when he calls them together, it's like a public statement from, from the landowner to all these tenant farmers. And they realize this is an important announcement and he's using his authority as the manager or the steward of the landowner. So they all gather and it's an urgency. Oh, there's, there's, a, there, there's something going down. We all have to gather. So they come as though it's a community meeting of critical importance. And then he begins to take each person in this large meeting individually aside because he doesn't want to reveal what he's doing. And he wants to play each person appropriately, like he's giving them a deal. Yeah, come on over here. I want to talk to you. And he's, he says, yeah, you owe know, 100? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I know things have been tight for you this year. And... Um, I know the wheat farmer's doing a little bit better than you are, and I know olive oil's really a struggling crop, and you know, you've been pretty good, you've always paid your rent, and uh, I, I really shouldn't do this, but I'm gonna make an exception for you. I really think that, that you're gonna come around, so I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. And he is selling them like he's wearing this coat. He is working them, <laughs> and he says to him, listen, you give me 50, and we'll erase it, you're clear. Amanda. Really? He says, but you tell a soul, you tell anybody, the deal's off. I want your signature, I want your approval. Anyone finds out because they're all going to want the same deal. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Now, let me just tell you what 50 is in relation to the olive oil. It's, um, and I, I did the calculations, I have to find it. It's about 500 denarii, which is 500 days wages. So whatever you get paid a day, multiply that by 500. He's, he's relieving him of that debt. He says, I want, I want it in your signature. So he's, he's actually updating the books with the man's signature and his seal, and they mark it, and it's, it's done. He says, now you just get out of here, and I don't want you telling a soul. I won't tell a soul. He says, next, and the wheat farmer comes in. He doesn't like this guy too much, and you know, 20% on the wheat crop is still the same equivalent of 50% on the oil crop. So he says, I'll tell you what, you owe 100, you give me 80, we'll write off 20. Deal? Yeah. Uh, but you tell a soul, and the, oh, I got it. And he just keeps doing this down the line, and he milks the books. And uh, he conducts these private interviews, and he makes sure that that meeting doesn't spin out of control, and he maintains the control because he has the books. And 500 denarii comes his way in each of these transactions. Now, all that being said, what do you think happens in the community after they gathered all the tenant farmers together and everybody got a reduced deal and all their debt was paid? The city was partying. Um, all the pastors met up at, and this is true, all the pastors in the community, uh, evangelical pastors met up at the Sarah Retreat Center in Malibu. And we all got there and we were praying and we were talking about you know, what we want to do together as pastors in this coming year. We want to do a, maybe a corporate sunrise service together. Uh, we were talking about um, how we want to put a, a, like a Christmas party together for the city council and their spouses and the executive management team of the city and their spouses. And we want to bring in you know, um, stringed instruments doing Christmas songs and maybe our singing group and all kinds of stuff. And the pastors were thrilled about it. And we'll host it another and do the dinner and cater it and make it lovely. And they were thrilled. But one of the coolest things is uh, one of the pastors suggested that there's an organization called RIPMedicalDebt.com. And it's a guy who's, 
gone in and he's, he's looked at all these folks that have incurred unbelievable medical debt for uh, surgeries they've, they've undergone and they couldn't pay the debt. And there was an emergency surgery, they couldn't pay the debt. It went into collections. Um, the hospitals wrote it off. The, the, the uh, doctors wrote it off and now it's in collections. And whatever the collection agent can get, they'll pay that off pennies on the dollar. And you can erase literally uh, $2 million of medical debt for $25,000. And what they do is they'll, they'll run a, um, a zip code in our area, so let's just say 91320, and we'll download all of the medical debt located in 91320. And we'll make an arrangement where uh, all of our churches together will accumulate the money and work with this RIPmedicaldebt.com and, and we'll, we'll come to a, a consensus and we'll buy that debt for $25,000, we'll pay off $2 million of debt for all the citizens in the community, whether they're churchgoers or not. And then on Resurrection Sunday, we'll send the announcement out um, and a mailer will go out that the Christians in the community have erased your debt. Yeah, really profound kind of cool deal. And, and I thought that was awesome. And we would do that. And I tell you what, people will come to church. They'll be like, why would you do that? Oh, just because we're really cool. You know? <laughs> Because we're doing, we're illustratively expressing to you that what we did earthly wise, Christ did heavenly wise. He has covered the magnitude of your debt. You could have never have paid it and he did it upon the cross. And, and yet they'd be thrilled because their medical debt and their, their, their um, you know, credit rating would probably increase because they took care of it. And there would be a party in the community and it would be the buzz and they'd probably run an, an acorn article on it. Well, that's what's happened here. There's a festive mood and it breaks out in the honor of not the manager, although they're elevating him. It breaks out in honor of the master, the one who owns the property. What a really benevolent, cool dude he is. He just, he just erased 50% of my debt, 20% of my debt. What a great guy. I'm going to make it this year. We've had a little bit of a drought, but I'm going to survive. This is going to be the year I get to reinvest in, 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 uh, you know, some of the farm equipment, I'm going to be able to make improvements on the house. My wife will finally be able, you know, all these things they're thrilled about. And the interviews are finished and he's gathered all and he's altered all the accounts and he's taken his little dig of it. And now it comes down to a point where the community's celebrating and this is where I want to bring it. The master's faced now with two choices because of what the steward has done. The master's faced with two choices because of what the steward's done. He can legally go to the village, explain to everyone in the village according to rabbinical law that this man is in violation and none of these agreements are legitimate and you all must pay completely in full. Everyone's like, party, no longer party. We liked you, now we hate you. And the, and the master has full authorization to go in and deal with this and, and all these, de these deals that the, the steward made we're not done in my name, and the original counts must be paid in full. And that is what's required. And then instead of a day of happiness, it would turn into a day of sadness. There'd be no party, no nothing. Now, the second thing that the master can do is he can just remain silent. He's a clever scoundrel. He's playing upon my benevolence. He knows I love these people. And I am a generous man. It's a reflection of the Lord. God is gracious, patient, gracious. 
He's long-suffering. He's a benevolent God. He's a loving God. And he goes along with the ruse of this steward. He's known in the community as a generous man. They, they love this master so much that they'd actually come to him and say, your manager's stealing from you. He knows how the community feels about him. He is generous. He could, he could say, you know what? I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let you all have the deal that the steward set up, but I'm sending him to prison. I'm gonna enslave him to pay the penalty for it. He wants to make the deal, he's gonna have to pay for it. But that's not the, the master. The master is gracious and merciful. Now, I, I like this because when I was a young boy, I threw a ball against the wall over at the Glard's house. I do it after school. Mr. Glard, really, really, really rich guy. He, he had a lot of money. My dad was a struggling Navy commander. He, the Gallards lived in a mansion across the street, and mansion's an understatement. And we lived in a dilapidated Irving Gill house that my dad had bought because it was gonna be condemned, and the only reason why it was inhabitable is because dad, my dad made us work every, every weekend and in the evenings when he'd come home from work. And... I was the youngest of four, so I managed to figure out how to do things where I would never obtain any type of building skill. <laughs> you get away with that when you're the youngest. And, and at this point, I'm throwing the ball against the wall in the Gallard's garage, and I break a window. And Mr. Gallard comes over to the house, and I'm hiding in the house, and I know the knock on the door, and I know it's Mr. Gallard, and I was hoping no one saw it, and I wouldn't get accused of it, but I, he's, yeah. So he knocks on the door, my dad comes down, I know I'm in hot water. My dad answers the door, Mr. Gallard says, Commander, and uh, he says, yeah, Mr. Gallard, he said, your boy broke my window. My dad said, yeah, and he throws that ball out there, he did. He said, now, I can pay for the window. My dad already knows the answer, but I'm not gonna. He says, you know, I can pay for the window. But I think your son needs to pay for that window because it's his responsibility. I was like eight or nine. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any money because money, the definition of money, money is a representation of your contribution that you've made to society. I'd never made any contribution unless I had no money. I was nine. And any money I had, my dad gave me, so it was my dad's money. So really what Mr. Gallard's saying is, hey, Commander, you're gonna pay for it. My dad was so poor he couldn't pay attention. A commander's salary, he had just gotten back from another tour of Vietnam, he had four kids. You know, it's, it's tight. And my dad looks at Mr. Gillard and he says, I understand. My son broke it. And uh, my son doesn't have the money to pay for it, but Mr. Gillard, I'll make sure it's paid for and I'll get that replaced for you. He says, thank you, commander. And he leaves. And my dad paid for it. And at eight or nine years of age, long before I'd been a Christian or attended church, I can tell you a lesson that I learned that you're now going to receive. And my father taught me the lesson. When something is broken and it has to be fixed, somebody's got to pay for it. And it's usually the guilty party, me, 
But me, like you, I had no ability to pay the debt I owed. At eight, it seemed, or nine, it was insurmountable debt. I would never be able to pay it. As an adult, you and I, in the span of our cosmic treason against God himself, we will never in a thousand lifetimes be able to pay him back what we owe him, ever. None of this belongs to you or me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. It's all his. I will prove it to you. When you die, you will take none of it with you. It will remain on his earth. And you will be buried. And the U-Haul van will not follow your hearse to the cemetery. It's not going with you. It's his. You are a steward, as am I. We're entrusted, even with our children. My mom and dad were stewards, and even to their dying breath, they imparted to me wisdom as stewards of my life before they died. Even my dad in the throes of Alzheimer's imparted wisdom to me with what was left of his mental faculties. He was a steward and faithful to that call. He never blamed the teachers or the scoutmaster or the coach or the youth director for the condition of his kids. He stood before God and gave an accounting of his children that were entrusted to him as a steward to God. And God's gonna ask for the books. Give me the books. Give me the books. And my dad, I don't think, realized the lesson he taught me. I have no ability to operate in this world until I'm entrusted by another with either skills or finances. I'm in debt. The minute I'm born, I'm indebted. I need help. And what's true on the earth is true in heaven. You see, Jesus takes this entire story and he points out a very critical issue. He knows that this steward is a clever fellow. He knows he's shrewd. But this is the critical point of it. The master pays the price of the manager's salvation. He could have shut it all down but the manager got to get away with it because the master paid it all. Let that sink in. He doesn't commend him for being dishonorable, but for being resourceful. He's making a plan for this earthly world, like we all do. You're making plans now? You're like, if he doesn't hurry up, the Methodists are going to beat us to lunch. You're, you're, everyone's making plans. <laughs> but what Jesus says in this parable is he says, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than they are, with, than, than they are, than are the children of light. The world knows how to better prepare for their earthly future than we know how to prepare for our heavenly future. This is all they got. This is what they're living for. They know how to engage in the political process. They know how to engage in the civic arena. They know how to engage in arts and entertainment, media. Fam they, they know it all. 
They know how to work the system. They know how to get weaponize the law. They know how to put, silence you. They know how to do all that. And when the scripture says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we, we don't even know really how to apply this. And Jesus says, learn from this shrewd guy what he did for earthly gain, do for heavenly gain. He doesn't applaud the dishonor of the manager. He applauded that he's clever because he acted dishonestly. It was fraud, but it was the most ingenious of fraud. Jesus put, the manager is certainly a scoundrel. That doesn't change. He's a clever scoundrel, but he's a scoundrel. But Jesus draws it all to a close when he says that he is a son of this age, a son of this world. His morals are deplorable. But his motivation is amazing. The manager's smart enough to know that his only hope, his only salvation, is to put the entire trust in the unqualified mercy and grace of the master. That's critical. You see, we're not getting off this big blue marble without being reconciled to the master. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, you're a Buddhist, you're a Muslim, you're a Christian, it doesn't matter. Every religion or lack of religion leads to God. Only one religion leads to heaven. The Bible says that it's appointed once for man to die, then God says, give me the books. God's gonna make us give an accounting of our life. And, and here's the interesting thing. All of us come to a place where we're like, I'm a good person. My favorite is when I, I deal with members of the community that are atheists that de- declare to me, you are evil. And I think to myself, oh, time out. You're not allowed to use that term. That's a metaphysical term. You only live in a world of matter. There's no right, no wrong, no good, no bad, no right, no evil, no... You, you can't use the word evil. Call me anything you want, but you can't say evil. You're stealing my worldview to defend your own. As a matter of fact, if you're an atheist and you believe in survival of the fittest and we are some cosmic accident that came from a wart on a frog that all of a sudden developed into a human being, if, if this is your worldview that we're survival of the fittest, and I say this to college students, higher education, which is an oxymoron, but I say this to them, I go, I go, if you believe that there is no God and there are no absolutes, you cannot definitively say that rape is wrong. Because... Wouldn't it make sense that your DNA would continue on? I mean, if it's survival of the fittest. And honest atheists, which there's no such thing as honesty, I guess, I don't know, agree. And you have this worldview. And God says, it doesn't matter if you believe in me or you don't believe in me, it's like gravity. You're still gonna give an accounting of violating. You don't have to believe in gravity. It doesn't matter. You run off a cliff, you die, whether you believe or you don't. You'll you'll give an account, I want the books. 
And this is an illustration of it. I'll close with this. This benevolent master is the Lord. And you and I are the unjust stewards. I know that's hard to fathom. Because a lot of you say, I'm a good person. I don't need this. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to yield to that. You are a good person. You are really good. And you're, you're sitting there going, yeah, I am really good. I know you. I've seen you, Rob, in the papers. I know what you've done. You're not a good person compared to me. And the coolest thing about this is I completely agree with you. I mean, I've set the bar so low <laughs> that, that an ant could go under it with a top hat on and barely clear. That's how low the bar is. You win. Bummer. You win and you lose. You win, you're right. You got the moral advantage over me. You do your moral signaling, your virtue signaling. You got me beat. I'm a white male, I'm the lowest on the totem pole. You win. <laughs> but time out. I'm not the standard. God is. And even if you're a good person, however you define that, have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever done anything wrong? How many times a day does a good person do something wrong? And we're living longer now, so let's just add that up. And God says, I want the books, and you bring the books of your life, and you roll them out when you breathe your last on this earth. And for me, I'd roll it out. I'm like, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a good, I'm a kind of a good person. I'm gonna, it's still rolling. I'm awful. This rolls. And yet God says, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead. Will you, do, will you do this for me as a benevolent master, God says. I'm not gonna throw you in prison. My grace is sufficient. Romans 8, 1 says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. I'm gonna cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I'm gonna forgive you and I want you to forget what is behind and strive for what is ahead and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. I'm gonna erase the debt behind you. Now it's time to live in front of you. And I want you to live with eternity in mind. I want you to store treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal because you're living on my earth, breathing my air, drinking my water, eating my food. And I want you to live for my purposes because I am the landlord and you're tenant farmers, and you're my steward. And I'm gonna ask you for the books. Now I forgive you. You've been wasting my stuff. But from this day forward, I want you to see the heart of the master. I forgive you, and I still employ you. Now, the application is real simple. They came up, they shared. I mean, these three are gonna be going to India and Africa. I, th I think we should have had a standing ovation because this is Christian royalty. We're consumed with our earthly comfort. 
we're finagling, robbing Peter to pay Paul so that we can maintain our employment and our baubles and our trinkets and they've got it all on the line to go. Because as stewards, they want their entire life to count for the glory of God. And so when we go to do something, we examine in the light of what would the master want with what he's entrusted to me? And I I thought about that and I thought, what you're asking for is such, such a pittance in the scheme of things that I pray God blesses you abundantly. And I, and I know this congregation be generous. That's not my worry. But I think for all of us, it's just to reevaluate and say, God, thank you for being such a merciful master, for giving me the multitude of my debt. And what this earthly, conniving, evil steward did for, for, for an earthly benefit, I, I, Lord, I want to do it right for a heavenly benefit. I want to serve your kingdom. 